I first opened this series a few weeks ago on the commandment, you shall not covet, that's number 10. I warned us that if we don't deal with the sinful roots, we will inevitably see some sinful fruits, right? And we've seen that play out in Shermaine's message about not bearing false witness. We see that play out in Frosty's marriage about not stealing. And what? In your marriage? Did I say marriage? Oh, no. He didn't steal anything in our marriage. <laughs> Just my heart. Aww. No, in his message. <laughs> But both of those behaviors um, were actually sinful fruit that was birthed from a sinful root that was never fully dealt with. And we're about to dive into yet another commandment that is going to look at the product of entertaining evil thoughts and selfish desires. It's actually a product of our innate selfishness. And when it happens, it brings harm to others, it brings harm to ourself, and it brings harm to God. Everyone is hurt when this commandment is broken. So let's talk about it. It's Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. But what is adultery? Well, it's when sexual relations occur where at least one of the participating parties is married. In other words, two people started to strongly desire to the point of taking, coveting, someone who did not belong to them. And that covetousness, when it's not taken captive in the mind, it actually will result in actions that bring damage to the marriage relationship and to that person's relationship with God. How does it harm your relationship with God? Well, because marriage is a covenant relationship ordained by God. A covenant is a binding agreement between two parties, husband and wife. But a Christian marriage is so much more than that. It's a binding agreement between husband and wife and God. See, a Christian marriage should have God at the center of that relationship. In Ecclesiastes 4, it's spoken about where it talks about the benefits of two being better than one, but then it goes on to say that a strand of three cords is not easily broken, meaning a relationship with God is much stronger. And why is that? Because a relationship with God helps us to take our eyes off self. It helps us to become less selfish and focused on our own desires. And a Christian marriage, if we were to look at it in this way, it looks more like a triangle. I want you guys to picture a triangle where husband and wife are the two bottom corners of the triangle, and God is at the top corner. And in this situation, ideally, the man and the woman should be trying to become more and more like God in the way they live, in the way they love, in the way they forgive each other. And if they're becoming more and more like God, naturally they become closer together themselves, right? That's how we should look at a Christian relationship. And let's also quickly talk about the biblical view of marriage. Because God defines in scripture marriage as a covenant relationship between one man and one woman. However, the world is increasingly trying to redefine marriage to suit our own personal preferences instead of aligning with God's intended design. When we, the creation, we often think that we know better than the one who created us. And even Shermaine was touching on this with Job being humbled by God. See, oftentimes when we're trying to elevate our own personal opinion over God's definitive truth, it's like we're trying to flip that triangle and saying, God, you shouldn't be at the top. I know better than you. God, you should come into alignment with me. You should come into alignment with my preferences and my perspective. That's what we're doing when we're trying to twist scripture to fit our own preferences. We're 
trying to flip that triangle. And when we put ourselves above God, that puts us into dangerous territory. That's when we allow sin to corrupt our hearts and distance ourselves from God. We need to flip that back and make sure God is at the top. And we're saying, God, what is your intended design? Not only for marriage, but also for me and for the plans that you have for my life. So in order to understand why God considers adultery so bad that it would be in the Ten Commandments, it's important that we look at his heart and his design for marriage, right? Because in the words of Pastor Mike Todd, he said, if the church doesn't talk about these things, we leave it open for the world to define. And that the world has, right? If you ask the world what marriage is, you'll often hear phrases like this. It's just a piece of paper. It's just an option for our relationship. Better get a prenup in case it doesn't work out, right? We hear those phrases all the time. The world has reduced marriage down to an option, not the destination for your relationship. The world has minimized marriage to simply being a piece of paper with some signatures on it. The world has emphasized having a backup option, which suggests that the relationship is only ever viewed as temporary instead of a lifelong commitment. And when the world has redefined it in this way, it is no wonder why so many marriages are ending in divorce. In fact, I looked up the statistics for New Zealand, and as of last year, 42% of marriages end in divorce. That is heartbreaking. 42%. And so it's no wonder why so many married people commit adultery if they only ever viewed their spouse as temporary. It's no wonder that so many people in long-term relationships delay getting married or never even get to it because in their mind, the world has convinced them it's just a piece of paper. In fact, for some, it's just a piece of paper that will mean they'll get less benefits from the government. Like if I'm just being real right now, for some, it's a piece of paper that won't change anything in their relationship because they're already sleeping together and living together, which actually are actions reserved for the marriage covenant. Y'all, in the world's eyes, marriage is just a piece of paper. It's an option. It's temporary. But in God's eyes, marriage is a covenant relationship. It's a, a binding agreement between a man and a woman and has God at the center of it. It's not an option. It should be the intended destination for a Christian re relationship. It's not temporary. It is a lifelong commitment through the highs and the lows of life. You see, when a man and a woman get married... It's like these two pieces of paper being binded together. They become united as if they are one. They're dying to themselves and saying, we have this new identity as a married couple. They're getting binded together. Genesis 2, 24 speaks of this. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united, and they become one flesh. They become one flesh through the act of consummating the marriage. Having sex, y'all. In biblical times, marriage was always consummated by the act of sex. And now you might think because of your perspective of who God is, you might think, oh, sex is bad. God doesn't like sex. No, sex was God's idea. He likes sex when it's contained within the intended design of marriage, right? Sex was God's idea. But he knew that sex would physically unite man and woman together to become one flesh. Marriage and sex are connected. But there's so much more than just a physical connection in sex. There's an emotional and a spiritual connection. And within the container of marriage, it's beautiful. And it can lead to greater connection with your spouse, but also can lead to reproducing and having a beautiful family. Sex, it needs a container because it's so powerful. Let me try and explain it this way. When water isn't contained 
it can bring incredible damage through a flood, right? When water is not contained, it could wipe out an entire city. When water is not contained, it could seep into the walls of your home and produce mold that could harm the people living inside. When water is not contained, it can bring death and it can bring pain. But when properly contained, it can turn electrical turbines producing power for an entire city. When water is properly contained, it can be channeled and used to irrigate an entire field and produce growth for crops. The same goes for fire. When fire isn't contained, it can bring incredible destruction through forest fires. It can tear down a house through a house fire. But when fire is contained within a fireplace, it can bring warmth and comfort to a family. Sex like water and fire, it needs a container if it's meant to bring life and not death, if it's meant to bring growth and not pain. And marriage is that container. God knew of its power on the human mind and the human body, and that's why he gave us clear guidance on how to do it best. But what does the world do? Ignores the container. And so what do we see? We see a world of pain and a world of destruction and a world of confusion. You remember these two pieces of paper that got binded together? Well, when somebody in this marriage starts to entertain the thought of coveting someone other than their spouse, it leads first to an emotional connection, right? And do we remember what Jesus said in the New Testament about this very commandment? Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whoa, right? Just looking at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. See, when you allow the sinful root to flourish into this lust-fueled emotional connection with somebody else, Jesus is saying that's just as bad. It's just as bad in the eyes of Jesus. The emotional connection that you've established with your work colleague who just gets you, who just understands you and makes you feel more seen than your spouse, that is leading you to emotionally cheat on your spouse, which in the eyes of Jesus is just as bad because you've already committed adultery with them in your heart. But nowadays that emotional connection so quickly leads to a physical connection, right? Where someone can physically cheat on their spouse and become united to someone else. And all of a sudden, there's a third person in the picture. Remember, marriage and sex are connected. So when someone in the marriage goes and commits adultery, they're bringing that marriage connection with them. They are united as one flesh to their spouse. And all of a sudden, a third person is invited in on that and is now united in. Now you have this third paper joined to these first two. And if you try to remove this third paper, it's not going to be so pretty. It's not going to come easy. In fact, it's going to leave a scar. You can't pretend like the affair didn't happen. You can't pretend like adultery is just going to go away. When you remove the third person from the original two, it leaves significant damage and destruction behind. Remember how these commandments, I said this in week one, they're supposed to help us better love God and better love people. They're supposed to help us better love God and better love people. And what does adultery do? It brings harm to you, to your spouse, to the third person, and to God. And whether you are physically cheating on your spouse or emotionally cheating, there's going to be some damage that will take time to heal. It will take time to repair. It leaves a scar that only God can help restore this marriage to wholeness. Only God can help restore these people to wholeness, and I promise you he can. 
And now you might be thinking, well, what about the third person who has emotionally or sexually had an affair with a married person? Well, they don't walk away pain-free. They're harmed in that relationship too. It has this cascading effect of destruction because it's more than the spouse. It's more than the person you cheated with. It's more than your relationship with God. There is a cascading effect of destruction. Just like a forest fire doesn't choose to just harm a couple trees. And like a flood doesn't choose to just harm a couple houses, there is a wake of pain and destruction that follows adultery. In the words of Max Lucado, he said, years ago, a friend gave me this counsel. He said, make a list of all the lives you would affect by your sexual immorality. I did. Every so often, I reread it. My wife, my three daughters, my son-in-law, my yet-to-be-born grandchildren, every person who has read one of my books or heard one of my sermons, my publishing team, our church staff, This list reminds me one act of carnality is a poor exchange for a lifetime of lost legacy. Then he went on to say, dads, would you intentionally break the arm of your child? Of course not. Such an action would violate every fiber of your moral being, yet if you engage in sexual activity outside of your marriage, you will bring much more pain into the life of your child than would a broken bone. One act of carnality is a poor exchange for a lifetime of lost legacy. You know, there was a recent example of this that came out of the effects of the pandemic. When people were isolated and not in community to keep accountability with each other, it led this famous New York pastor to seek love and affirmation from a woman he simply met in the park. He had four kids and an incredible wife at home. But in that moment in the park, he entertained the thought of coveting a woman who did not belong to him. And the entertainment of that thought led them to exchanging phone numbers that day in the park, which led them to emotionally cheating on his spouse, which led to him physically cheating on his spouse. This act of carnality was a poor exchange for his lifetime of lost legacy. He lost his church. He lost his influence because he played with fire outside of the container of marriage. He got burned, and so did his legacy. And he's now having to rebuild from the ground up. He has to gain trust from his wife again. He has to gain trust from his kids again and from everyone who ever considered him a leader. If you were to truly run a cost-benefit analysis on adultery, you'd realize the costs far outweigh that momentary benefit of physical pleasure. Jared C. Wilson said, we give an inch at a time, just compromise after compromise, not in the explicit interest of disobeying God or dishonoring our marriage vows, but in the entrance of fulfillment, beauty, and enlightenment. Sin makes an emotional kind of sense to us that defies biblical reason, and the devil is more than happy to help with that too, because after all, God forgives anything, right? See, the devil is happy to come alongside you and whisper in your ear, look, they understand you more than your husband. They are more emotionally connected to you than your wife. They can give you what your spouse can't. Go ahead, flirt. Just go ahead and send that text. There's no harm done. Go ahead and fulfill that sexual craving. Nobody's going to find out and God's going to forgive you, right? The devil is more than happy to come and whisper in your ear all of these things that will affirm what you're wanting to hear just so you can fulfill that momentary benefit of pleasure. But he is so manipulative and so deceptive. The enemy will encourage you to just walk all over God's grace because the devil knows that Even when you try to go crawling back to God and you find God's forgiveness with a repentant heart, 
The devil has already left his mark on you. He's already scarred your relationships. He's like, I did what I needed to do. Even if God is going to forgive you, you're going to have to take time to heal. You're going to have to take time to recover. Life won't look the same initially. Proverbs 6, 27 to 29 says, For how can a man light his pants on fire and not be burned? Can he walk over hot coals of fire and not blister his feet? What makes you think you can sleep with another man's wife and not get caught? Do you really think you'll get away with it? Don't you know it will ruin your life? Today I want us to quickly unpack two questions. If I have committed adultery, what do I do now? And if I haven't committed adultery, how do I stay faithful to my spouse? If you have committed adultery by either cheating on your spouse, even emotionally, or you've been involved with a married person, then I encourage you to remember the advice that Frosty gave in his message last week. Make it right and repent. It sounds simple in words, but can be hard in actions. Make it right and repent. How do you make it right? You cut off that sinful relationship. You block their number. You unfollow them on social media. You unfriend them on Facebook. Let them know it is done. Look, if you work with them, you might even need to ask to be transferred desks or transferred offices. If you gym with them, you might need to switch gyms. If they're a close friend of you and your spouse, you need to cut off that friendship. You need to make it right. Remove yourself from the temptation. Put physical distance between you and them. But then here's another hard part. You need to make it right by telling the person you've cheated on. And if you're thinking, but Darcy, what they, doesn't, what they don't know doesn't hurt them, right? Well, to that I say withholding truth is actually a form of deception. Can we all agree on that? When you're withholding truth, that's a form of deception. And as we learn from Shermaine's message, when we start to build up these lies, we find ourselves stuck in this web of cover-ups. And then we can't live in the full freedom that God wants us to live in. That full freedom to live in that means getting out of that web of lies, that web of deception, and living in the truth. That means making it right and repenting. It means going to God and saying, God, I really need your wisdom, and I really need your discernment to know how to have this really difficult conversation. God can give you that wisdom. God can give you that grace and that discernment and the words to use so that you can start to live in the truth. Repent to God and to the person that you've harmed. Ask for their forgiveness. Commit to healing, to fully turning away from that sinful relationship and commit to healing and growth. Because God can forgive you in a moment, but it will take time to repair the relationship that's been damaged. King David knows this all too well, how hidden sin can eat away at the human heart. He committed adultery with Bathsheba and he wrote in Psalm 32, three, when I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. But let verse five give you hope. David said, finally, I confessed all my sins to you and I stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. My friend, God has so much grace for you in the same way he had grace for David. And God can forgive you in a moment, but remember, it will take time to repair the relationship with your spouse. If you haven't committed adultery, how do you stay faithful in your relationship? Well, I want us to quickly unpack five building blocks of a strong and a healthy marriage. Because you may fall in love with somebody, and I hope you do, 
But to continue loving them the past that honeymoon phase is a choice. It's a daily effort to build your relationship. See, too many people, they place the high importance on being in love that they forget how to choose love when life gets hard, when the initial giddy feelings fade. See, marriage, it requires work from both parties being willing to build a great foundation that they can stand on until their last days. So the first building block that I would love to see in a strong and healthy marriage is open communication. Open communication. You know, a survey, a survey by Family Services Association found that 87% of married couples said their main problem in marriage was communication. They simply didn't know how to get on the same page with each other. They didn't know how to talk to each other about the big things. Your relationship, it needs honesty, even when it hurts. It means confessing in the times where you've gone wrong and learning how to say, I'm sorry. That's huge. Learn how to say, I'm sorry. And if you've been hurt, then I want you to find the courage to be able to tell your spouse why you feel that way and how they made you feel. Learn how to become an active listener, which means you learn how to listen to understand a person, not just to respond to them. Too often we listen to respond. We listen to validate why we did something the way that we did instead of listening just to understand how the other person is feeling. Open communication, it means no secrets. It means full transparency, and that will build an incredible platform for your relationship to grow. And the second building block is mutual submission. Mutual submission. See, submission and love, they go hand in hand. And we know that because the greatest act of love the world has ever seen was Jesus himself coming to this world and submitting himself to the cross. That was the greatest act of love we've ever seen so that we might be in relationship with him. In scripture, wives are asked to submit to their husbands, and many people love to focus on this key scripture. But let's look at the full context of Ephesians chapter 5, which asks for mutual submission. Verses 21 to 28. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present, him, present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. It started out by saying, submit to one another, right? Mutual submission. The biblical view of marriage also shows us that the husband is seen as the head of the marriage as Christ is the head of the church. This means that as wives, we need to recognize that God has placed certain leadership and responsibility on our husbands to care for us and for our families. But it doesn't mean that it produces a lot of women that are weak and silent. Trust me, Frosty knows I have strong opinions and I speak my mind, but I also know that Frosty will make decisions for our family that will have our best in mind. It means that when Frosty sits in a lead pastor's meeting with the other campus pastors, with all the men, I know that he is there representing both of us. He is representing both of our shared opinions. He's representing us and our church. I trust that Frosty has certain leadership and responsibility on his life to make the best decisions for us and our family and for our church. But this scripture also shows us that husbands 
are asked to love their wife in the same way Christ loves the church, meaning he must lay down his life for her. He must be willing to lay down his life for her. And what does that mean? Sometimes he needs to lay down his preferences or his game controller or his fishing pole or beers with the mates or late hours at work or a boring, undecorated house (laughs) in order to better love and care for his wife. See, we know that Jesus was a servant leader. So a husband should be a servant leader within the house, marked with humility. We can expect that from our husbands to be servant leaders within a house. And let's also remember, Jesus washed his disciples' feet, right? So husbands, maybe your wife needs a foot massage tonight. We're asked to mutually submit to each other, okay? It requires mutual submission and recognizing what both people bring to that marriage relationship. And the third building block is honoring respect. Honoring respect. You know, we were once friends with a couple that often made us really uncomfortable when we'd be around them, simply by the way that they talked to each other. Not so much her, but very much him. The husband was constantly shutting the wife down in front of people. He'd call her stupid. He'd silence her ideas. He would speak over her. It was awful. And I'd often try to find myself speaking up for her in his presence and trying to validate her ideas so she didn't feel so diminished. How do you speak to your spouse in public? Because if you've lost all respect for them in public, it shows me that you've lost all respect for them in private. In fact, this disrespectful husband, he ended up emotionally cheating on his wife with other women online. Even though it didn't eventuate into anything physical, he started to direct his affection and his attention at other women instead of honoring and respecting his own wife. He lost all respect for her, and that led to him emotionally cheating on his wife. And it caused considerable damage when the truth surfaced. And if your marriage is lacking honoring respect from either party, then you need to reevaluate how you treat them both in private and in public. You know, I need to be Frosty's biggest fan at all times. And the same goes for him with me. Even if we have an argument, because we do, we're all human, right? I don't need to go tarnish his name to other people. If we have an argument, I need to go speak to him. I need to speak to God. And in moments, if we need help, I need to speak to a counselor. I don't need to go talk to the world about him. Because a strong marriage is one that has honoring respect at all times and in the company of all people. Keith can come join me now. The fourth one is intentional intimacy. Intentional intimacy. You know, we live in a sexually perverse world. I think a lot of us can agree on that. And you might be thinking, the world is so corrupt. We've gone so far from biblical times. Let me tell you, if you read in biblical times and you look into the, the, the state of some of those cities that the churches were developed in, it was messed up too, okay? Okay. If we talk about the city of Corinth just for a moment, when Paul was writing the letter to the Corinthians, Corinth in that day, it was like the Las Vegas Strip or the Red Light District, a place where sexual impulses were catered to and encouraged. It was messed up. And so when people in Corinth became born-again believers, they had to get a new perspective on what sex was. They had to change their mind on what God's intended design for sex and what it was meant to be. And so Paul said to them, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 2 and 3. But since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. God's saying, married people, have sex. Y'all should do it. 
but he wants that to take place within the container of marriage. However, after couples have been together for some time, sometimes the intimacy can fade. And someone in the marriage might start to feel deprived, and that's when Satan's going to creep in and start to present to you some other options. And so we need to make sure we don't allow for that deprivation to come to the surface where we allow a foothold for the enemy to come in and say, what about this? What about her? What about him? Intimacy within marriage, it requires intentionality. And like I said before, we've got to work at building a great marriage. So we need to be intentional about learning each other's love languages. If you've never heard of that, get the book. The five love languages are quality time, acts of service, touch, gifts, and words of affirmation. And your spouse will have one or two love languages that are dominant for them. And that means that's how they want to receive love, which might be different from how you want to receive love. And so to be intentional is learning your spouse's love languages so that you can show them love in the way they want to receive love. And if you do that, it's probably going to lead to greater sexual intimacy. But also listen to the words of Charles Swindoll. He said, thinking correctly about marital intimacy lays the groundwork for enjoying it fully. That means cut out that porn habit or the explicit movies or the perverse music that is painting a very unrealistic expectation of what sex should be. Because if you believe that sex is supposed to look like what it looks like in porn or in explicit movies or in perverse music, then you will never be fully satisfied. Understand what marital intimacy should be truly like according to God and you will enjoy it fully. And the final building block is absolute faithfulness. Marriage requires absolute faithfulness from both parties in order for that marriage to remain strong. It means being loyal to one another, not just physically, but also emotionally. It means not allowing your heart to entertain the thought of somebody else. It means removing yourself from any compromising situation. Don't allow yourself to be alone with somebody of the opposite sex. Just don't put yourself in a compromising situation that could lead to an emotional connection, that could lead to a physical connection. It means doing your best to ignore a sexually obsessed world that is parading options in front of you at every turn. If you are married, you have chosen the person you want to spend the rest of your life with. And I encourage you daily, keep choosing them. But with every building block, you need both parties to help lay the foundation. Building a strong and healthy marriage is a shared responsibility. Because let me also say to all those that you did everything you could to fight for your marriage, but your spouse still chose to be unfaithful and walk away from you, can I tell you, God has so much grace and love for you. God still has beautiful plans for your life. And God can heal any wounds that somebody else has inflicted. And if you're in a marriage right now that is struggling, I encourage you, sign up to the marriage course. When we open up small group signups, do something intentional to work on building a greater, stronger, healthier marriage together. If you need to, go see a counselor. There should be no stigma about going to see a counselor. In fact, we have Jan right here in the second row who offers free counseling sessions here on a Wednesday afternoon. Go talk to somebody that can help you. Don't just talk to your friends about it and keep tarnishing your spouse's name. Work on something together. But most importantly, go to God. Because if both of you, remember that triangle, could aim to become more and more like God. If both of you are doing that, naturally, your faith will become stronger, but you'll also become stronger as a couple. 
stronger in your relationship because you'll be able to see your spouse the way God sees them. You'll be able to love them the way that God loves them. And as you grow stronger together, so will your faith, so will your family. So can I just quickly pray for all of the marriages currently in the room right now. I'm just gonna ask that you guys all close your eyes and bow your heads. God, I just thank you so much for every single marriage that is represented in the room today. God, I pray in this moment that they could start to see their spouse the way you see them. I pray in this moment they would be reminded that they themselves can become a better person if they start to become more and more like you. God, I pray that for those marriages that need some help, that they would have the courage to have an open conversation this afternoon and say, we need to sign up for the marriage course. We need to get a mentor to come help us with our relationship. We need to go see a counselor. God, I pray that open communication would happen this week. I pray that there would be mutual submission this week and honoring respect of each other this week. I pray that there would be intentional, in, intentional intimacy this week. And God, would you bless that? because we know sex was your idea within the container of marriage. And God, I pray that there would be absolute faithfulness, that this is a message that might challenge hearts, might convict hearts, but I pray that it would open hearts to see your love and your grace and your intended design for us. And I pray that it's a message that could lead people to having a date night this week, sitting down with each other and saying, I've forgotten how to love you in the same way I loved you when we first met. How can I love you better? God, I pray that you would help people with those conversations. I pray that you would strengthen marriages here. I pray that for marriages that are on the brink of breaking, God, would you surround them with the right people that could mentor them and that could help them journey to a stronger place. I pray that you could help them, that you could just shower, shower their relationship with grace and with mercy, Lord. And for all those that have been hurt by the act of adultery, Lord, I pray that in this moment they would know your love. I pray that they would know your comfort and your healing power for whatever scars somebody else left on them. I pray that you could bring them to full restoration and you could help them learn how to love again. And I ask for that in your almighty name.